welcome to the Mindful Movement Show. We're your hosts, Tony and Amanda Johnson. This is a podcast dedicated to helping moms and dads heal their hurts, transform their health from the inside out, and become the best people, partners, and parents they can possibly be. Our mission is to normalize struggle and profile stories of resilience, character building, and the process of healing and becoming. In season one, we spotlight healers from a variety of modalities who are also parents. We hope you enjoy the show. Drew Tupper is an author, life coach, husband, and father of two. He has dedicated his life to seeking truth and creating purpose. He practices these intentions by examining and analyzing questions such as, why are we here? How should we live? What matters? And how can we be so that our lives are an outward projection of our being. He has, however, overcome struggle and knows what it feels like to be stuck, angry, and lost. His life is a testament to the adage that growth is not always a straightforward path, but that it is always a worthwhile pursuit. In his words, he, quote, found liberation in loving himself unconditionally, which allows him to create his life rather than simply react. And now this is what he helps his clients do. Drew is a mentor to us. Tony met Drew in the Dad Edge Alliance, which is a group of nearly 700 men who are striving to be the best dads and husbands that they can be. And we are so excited to have him on our inaugural season of the Mindful Movement Show. In this episode, we will be talking about his journey, the journey of healing and becoming, his coaching practice, and his book, Parenting for a Peaceful Home. Welcome, Drew. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. I'm excited to be here. And you're tuning in from where? Victoria, British Columbia, Canada. Love it. I know that you've had recent retreats at your home. Care to share a little bit about your neighborhood and your home and, and the craftsmanship you put into it? Oh, man. I'm, I'm about to take you on a tour right now. I know we don't have time <laughs> for that. But I, I do. It's, it's like, you know... Um, when you, when you get the phone out and you start showing pictures of your kids, like, oh, this is my kids, and I'm proud of my home, just like that. And I've worked a lot on it with my hands, and it's an old home. It's, like, from 1911. Lots wow. of wood. I love wood. Wood floors, uh, wood molding. It's uh, old-growth fur. Um, wow. And it's my hobby. It's like, it's, like, what I do when I'm not with my family or I'm not coaching, I'm working on my home. And it's this labor of love. And I just love being inside something that where I've worked on it with my hands and it's natural, it just feels so good. I love that. And the history and the connection with nature and you know, um, part of what we believe in practice yeah. is mindfulness and the connection between us and the natural world. And so I love that you spoke to that. Um, and maybe yeah, we can get into condos first... before. And, and um, this is different because it's got, it's a bit draftier because it's old, right? Sure. And it's not, not <laughs> as tight and sealed off as a condo, but there's something that feels good about living in here. You know, I, I, we have a fireplace, a brick fireplace. So I light the fireplace in the morning, in the winter. And it's just it, something in my DNA or my evolution that just loves that. That's so cool. I love that. <laughs> Well, thank you for sharing a little bit about your hobbies also. Um, and I'm wondering, just to kind of segue, if you can tell us a little bit about your upbringing, um, how your experiences shape how you show up in the world as a person, a parent, a partner, and a coach. 
Okay, yeah, thank you for the question. Um, my upbringing, as I mentioned in my book, is was, I think, pretty standard and, and even fortunate. Although my parents did split up when I was three and they got remarried uh, a few le years later to other people, so my stepmom and my stepdad. That was a hard time for sure. Like being young, I'm sure that shaped me. I was, luckily I was like the youngest. And so I was still allowed to have my feelings at the time because I was still yeah. kind of like a baby-ish, you know, three years old and four. And, and so I, I, I remember, you know, kind of kicking and screaming and not liking what was going on. And so I think that that was actually quite fortunate that I was still able, unlike perhaps my older siblings, felt the pressure of, you know, holding it together. I didn't. And so <laughs> I, I think that shaped me. I think that like being, you know, family positioning is an interesting thing. Like birth order is an interesting thing and how that shapes you. I always feel for the firstborn, man. I'm like, when I ever, when, if I ever meet a firstborn, I'm like, thank you for your service. You know, <laughs> um, that's actually both of us. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, it, you know, man, like the firstborns, like take it on the chin. Parents don't know what they're doing. Um, anyway, like f back to me and, and my development is that I think that shaped me in that, like, I never really stopped being expressive and e emotive. Like even, mm -hmm. even when I was, you know, told that it wasn't the right thing to do or, um, I tried to hold it together. I never really could. I was always quite emotive and expressive. And I think I grew into that in a good and positive and healthy way. Um, now sharing what I'm sharing, like I'm, I've written a book, I've got a blog, you know, I'm, I'm doing podcasts. And so I'm, I'm still sharing, but I think it's in a really positive and healthy way. Um, so that's, that's part of my upbringing. And another part is that, um, you know, I, I mentioned this to you before was that I had a, a fortunate and privileged upbringing. And yet inside of that, there was um, some wounding and some hurt that I experienced. And it was hard for me to come to grips with that because I was of the mindset that I should just feel lucky for yeah. the upbringing that I had in that, like, I, I should um, not think poorly of my parents. And so that, at some level made it hard for me to feel into the personal hurt that I carried from my early years. But once I realized that they're not mutually inclusive, right? There, you, can, you can do both at the same time. You can love and appreciate what you got and what you received, and you can still recognize the ways in which you were hurt and attend to those and, and heal those hurts. So once I realized that, that was a game changer. And I, it's like I became my own best friend or my ally. And I allowed myself to feel and heal, which was ultimately the greatest thing I could have done for myself and for my family. Powerful stuff, especially to be a man in a society and culture that promotes toxic masculinity. The power of human expression to create intimacy and connection and to have male examples of that is in my view you know what changes the world i have a father that was very stoic and very unpredictable and mm. left me guessing 
a lot about how he felt. And I internalized a lot of that as a result of some, I'm doing something wrong or I'm not worthy of his love. You also spoke to something really powerful, which in mindfulness we call the power of and, right? The, the, that two realities or multiple conflicting realities can be true, right? Mm. That you can come from a privileged background where your home was mostly fulfilling and, and uplifting but still have wounds that need to be addressed before you uncritically or unconsciously project those wounds onto your children. Would you yes. care to un unpack some of the, the wounding that you had to um, really work through and heal from? Yeah, sure. I, I think by and large, as far as I can tell, a lot of people experience one overarching kind of wounding, which is, there's something wrong with me or I'm not good enough. So there's different flavors of that. As far as I can tell, that's a, that's a very common one that people seem to share. And I'm no different. I thought there was something wrong with me. I carried shame with me. I didn't think that like, I thought that my mistakes in life disqualified me from being good uh, or being a good person or being, uh, worthy of like love and respect. So um, I learned to disqualify myself. I learned to be hard on myself. And and I, I would look almost trained and conditioned in a way where I'd, I'd scan my life to find ways in which I could confirm the belief that I wasn't good. Oh, look, there you go again. Look what you did there. Mm. You didn't do that right. Well, you screwed that one up. Yeah, you're never, well, you're never going to, you're never going to get ahead like that. And, that. and that's just who you are. And I'll tell you, one of the ones that stuck with me and I'm still working with uh, is that I can't get my shit together, that I'm, I'm like uh, disorganized. I'm, I'm uh, like a space cadet, which is something they used to call me, right? It, like families used to have like nicknames that, uh, for the kids, right? And looking back on it, it's like, hmm, I'm not sure that's all that cool. And in fact, it wasn't because it's, <laughs> yeah. it's just like the, it's this what seemed like an affectionate label or nickname, but it really wasn't. It was like this like uh, judgment wrapped in um, humor, but it becomes like a self-fulfilling prophecy. It becomes like a label that the kid takes on and owns, which is not not good. So when I work with parents, I'm I, I make sure to. Um, warn them on that and call that, call that to attention, which is like, don't put your kids in a box, give them freedom, mm -hmm. let them, mm -hmm. let them grow and, and, and learn and show that they can be a different person at different times that they're not, they're not pigeonholed. So I believe that I was pigeonholed in a way to believe that like I, I'm, I'm immature, incapable, can't get organized. I've got my head up my ass, like the baby of the family who's just, you know, kind of like, you know, I'm, you know, take care of me. Right. I, I don't, I don't, I can't do it myself. So that's one I had to work through because in my coaching practice, I came up against that man. I was like, Oh, I don't know, like calendars, booking and, and, uh, making things on time. And you know what would happen? I would miss some meetings. I would ghost on some meetings and I would just be like, the shame would come up. Oh, here we go again. Look at you. Look, Drew. Oh, yeah, there it is. Yeah, you can't make a meeting. Yeah, you're, you're irresponsible. 
And so that was like, I dealt with that up until like a couple of years ago. Um, shame. So shame seems to be a common feature of the wounding that we all carry. Like I'm not good or I'm, I'm wrong or, or not good enough because of this. And you, and I feel shame because of it. And it's really refreshing to hear from a coach who is able to be honest, open and reflective about the ways in which they still have learning and growing to do. And, you know, to your point, the ways in which we have been conditioned often create a line of thought and an imprinting that without being consciously questioned with curiosity and kindness, will repeat and replay. Oh yeah, and so I'm curious, just kind of, uh, thank you first of all for sharing that and just continuing with that particular example. I'm curious what flipped for you. Um, what encouraged you to, for example, change that type of like negative self-talk about yourself and how, how did, what did that process look like and how did you show up as a parent differently after that? I, I think that the key to all this is self-love and self-acceptance and then like becoming an ally to oneself and almost like a finding your inner coach or your inner parent, your inner loving, nurturing parent that's going to help you and usher you into the next stage of development in a healthy way. I think up until a certain point in my life, I was like a one trick pony. I was like trying the same thing again and again, expecting different results. So what I would try and do is I would try and shame myself or be hard on myself and double down on like, come on, like you can, and like, just kind of get angry at myself because that's what I knew how to do as a way to motivate myself. But what I learned was that what got me here isn't going to get me there. Like, yeah, that may have served its purpose. Maybe there were some moments where that kind of energy helped push me through some things. I don't want to totally disparage it. It had its purpose. But it seemed like being a husband, being a father, starting my own business requires something different. It What it was, was this self-love, the self-acceptance, this allowing myself to be human, allowing myself to make mistakes and to recover from that and to allow myself to retain my dignity at all costs. That would mean that if and when I made a mistake, I wouldn't allow myself to talk to myself in a disrespectful way. And I wouldn't let other people do that too, because sometimes that happens. Sometimes you could stay in the same dynamic with your parents for 30, 40, 50, 60 years. And so I, I put a stop to that. I was like, we're not going to do this dance anymore. I've got a, I got a new way of operating. It's like self-love. It's um, acceptance. It's radical acceptance. So like, I'm not available for that. And if my partner spoke to me in a certain way, I was just really cognizant of not taking on shame anymore. I'm just not available for it. Like we can talk about like a mistake I can repair. But once we start going down the road of like, yeah, but you're kind of a bad person. I'm like, no, I'm not <laughs> like, no, no, I'm not. And you know what? Neither are you. Uh, my kids aren't bad. We're all trying our best. And there was a few moments, there was a few moments where I, that really hit home for me. I think my son helped me learn that. There was one moment I remember looking at him in the front hall and I was sitting on the stairs and it just like came crashing down. I was like, oh my God, 
he's not bad. He's a good kid. He's just trying. He's, he's trying, but he's not bad. And it, there was a moment where I realized that moment, like there's no amount of demonizing and judging that makes any sense. It just doesn't fit anymore in my world. And so it's not that I'm perfect all the time, but I know in my heart now, I've had an experience, I've had a lived experience of thankfully through my son, I think, teaching me that he is good. He's good at heart. And I think it was almost like through him that I learned that I was too. Like, well, if he is, then maybe I am too. Maybe I've always been good. Maybe I've always been like, not perfect, but I've always been trying. And I, that's, that's the story of how I came to address any kind of conditioning and hurt that I had was to um, pour a bunch of love on it, patience, and really not allow myself or others to take me down that road again. I just, I'm not available for it. Brilliant stuff. It is true that our relationship with others and most especially our kids is often a reflection or a mirror to our relationship with ourselves. And so I think it's profound that you were able to realize your own intrinsic goodness by seeing it in him. I was thinking about the yeah. old term of phrase, um, old keys don't unlock new doors and how powerful mm. it is that you were really able to find a completely new key to unlock this new way of thinking, of parenting. And I think he brought up something really interesting about the child also becoming the parent, right? Like you had to reframe your relationship with your parents. Um, and that's something that I have personally had to work through. I come from a home, it sounds like more similar to yours. Um, mm. Even though I was the oldest still, uh, at least for me, I don't know how it was for you, but um, when you're no longer just a child, but you're a parent and to be, to change that, almost that relationship or how that communication works is, can be a challenge. It's super interesting. Um, there's a book out there. I forget the author and I might even forget the title. I'd probably butcher it, but it's something on the lines of being raised by healing, healing from being raised by emotionally immature parents, something like that. You Google that, you'll, you'll find the book. It's a fantastic book. And it would like, you know, it would probably bother most parents to know that like their children were reading that book, but <laughs> it's so accurate. Like it's only recently that we have even become interested in emotional intelligence and emotional maturity. So I'm banking on the fact that most families up until recently, and, and maybe even still, the, the parental unit is emotionally immature. And so the adult in the room is the one who's the most emotionally mature. That's the leader. So it's kind of a trip to be in the room with like your 60 year old, 70 year old parents, and you are the leader because you realize it's the best thing for the environment. It's the best thing for the relationship. It's a bit of a trip and, it, and it, it can be difficult to assert that position and to know what to do and how to do it. Um, but it's, it, it makes sense. It, 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 there's like a, a changing of the guard and it, it's not always like um, smooth. It's not always handed to you like, Hey, listen, because, because you've done the work and you've done the healing, 
it makes a lot of sense that we lean on you for discernment and maturity and it's not handed to the, it's not handed down like that very often. There can be a struggle, there can be friction, and there can be um, alienation sometimes where the parents of the adult children aren't willing to, they, they still want to retain their position of being in control. Mm-hmm. So it's a very interesting topic. And my household was definitely a top-down power structure where one of my dad's favorite quotes growing up was, if I say jump, you say how high. And that's just the culture in which he came from And that's the way generational trauma repeats itself, is the dictatorial, authoritative, in previous conversations, you and I have talked about it, about getting big and ruling through fear. So I think we may have gotten like a a little bit ahead of ourselves, and maybe we could go back, because some of your book is directed at helping people, but specifically in my context, fathers who come from a anger first and a pop maybe you get an apology on the back end type of family culture and you're not immune to that right in fact you've grown through that to be able to help people like me or others who may still have that as their modus operandi so i'd like you to please speak to a time in which you lost your temper more consistently and some of your more challenging moments that you've had as a dad Mm. well um because my model for parenting was uh, a mixed bag of things, but it included volatility, anger, judgment, shame, blame, and punishment, it certainly did. That's what I knew. That's what was inside of me. And I didn't revisit that until I became a parent. Like, why would I? Where, where would I do that? There's, there was no preparatory school for becoming a parent. I remember taking prenatal class and it was all about the birth. That's it. And that's the, that's the, prepar- that's the preparatory you know, course that I got in parenting. So because that was the imprinting, that's what I had learned. That's what I had experienced. That's what came out of me when especially my son became uh, more willful, like a baby's a baby. I had a hard time with the baby phase too but really had a hard time around toddlerhood when there could be this discernible moment where I say, Hey, don't do that. And he hears me. He hears me. I I see, I make, we made eye contact and he doesn't do the thing that I said for him to do. That's when, that's when the real anger and rage started coming up. And um, like I said to you before, I think we've had a conversation before where my brain kind of short circuited and I was like, what, 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 what a speechless, like looking at my wife, like did I, I, I spoke English, right? Like I, you know, <laughs> he, he heard me. Right. Yeah. And just so flabbergasted that a two-year-old could uh, be non-compliant and resistant to my instruction uh, led me to taking it so personally so personally the ego was so bruised so hurt um and you know myself at that time i was emotionally dysregulated for the most part like especially when the ego got bruised and so i didn't really have any strategies except 
making it worse in my head. Oh, he doesn't appreciate me. I do so much for him. What is this? This is nonsense. Like he, he, he's going to grow up to be entitled. And I would just like catastrophize and work myself up even more. So that was, that was my strategy, I suppose, but it was terrible because it would eventually lead me to acting out in like aggressive, uh, volatile, hurtful, you know, judgmental ways. And like, I look back on it now and it makes me sad because a two or three year old is not communicating any of those things. They're not trying to communicate like you're a shit dad. Look, hey, 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 guess what? I'm gonna listen to you and then I'm gonna basically communicate to you, screw you, old man. That's what I'm gonna do. <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna mess with your head because that's who I that's who I am. And I wanna I just wanna make sure that you feel small as a father. Like no kid is communicating that. But in that moment, I was so insecure and hurt and didn't have any strategies that I went there. And then going there is a real dangerous place because, you know, of what I experienced and like the manhandling and the roughness and, and the and the punishment that I received, that's where I went with my, my son. And it was like, I did it enough times and I was, I was, I was just aware enough that I was like, shit, this is not good. This is not good. And for a while, I didn't really know what else to do except just beat myself up for failing as the dad, which made things worse. And thankfully you've had the moments that have enlightened and grown your awareness and flipped the switch from being reactive to being intentional and practicing conscious parenting. And I actually want to quote one of the most memorable interactions I've had in my growth and transformation story as a father. And it came from you in a group coaching call. You said, that parenting, if performed consciously, is one of the greatest self-development courses a person can enroll in. I want you to please define conscious parenting for us and maybe offer some initial resources, yeah. strategies, or skills that parents can look into to become more conscious and aware of their patterns and their conditioning. Well, first of all, on the heels of what I just said, I wanna say that I'm lucky to be living in this time where we have a lot of support. We have way more support than our parents did in terms of like understanding childhood development, different ways of parenting, accepting of differences. I'm standing on the shoulders of other people, of researchers, of educators who have boldly put out new and better ways of doing things. So there's that, and I really appreciate that. I feel lucky. Conscious parenting, as I see it, is ultimately it's not about being spiritually more elevated than anybody else. That's a, a connotation of the word that is almost used now. I'm more, I'm con isn't that funny? I, I'm more conscious than you are. I'm, I'm very conscious. <laughs> and it becomes this like level of achievement. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about being aware, being aware in the moment right now. I'm aware of myself. I'm aware of what I'm saying. I'm aware of how I'm feeling. And all of those things combine together to help me live and behave in the most authentic way that I can. Generally speaking, I think for most people, that would be probably to live in ways that are like honest, kind, generous, you know, really good things. If you're aware of yourself 
and you're aware of what makes you feel good, it's amazing the similarities that I that I find between people. Like, wow, oh, a life of service and purpose and honesty and like challenging yourself to learn and grow, that's what makes you feel good? Like everybody, fantastic. This is amazing. This is good news that all that we really have to do is find ways, people, places to help us become more aware of ourselves and honoring of what we find when we, when we become aware of ourselves. So I think for me, a really big, huge exercise that like was the new, the new key for the new door was a practice of self-awareness. I was literally unaware of myself. Now, to me now, that seems strange because I can't imagine feeling different than I feel now, but I was. I, I was unaware of how I felt, what I was thinking. And as a result, behaviors would come out of me that were unpredictable, even to me. Like I could surprise myself. That's pretty wild, isn't it? I, go, I, I didn't know that was coming, like, but that was me. <laughs> so a practice of self-awareness is what really changed the game for me. And it's a real simple one. And if people are listening, please don't discount this practice. It's, it's, it's to three times a day, take two minutes. So six minutes in total, three times a day, morning, noon, and night. Take two minutes to stop whatever you're doing, to turn the, your attention toward yourself from the outside to the inside. We rarely do this. A lot of us are focused on what's happening on the outside and we're trying to manage what's on the outside and think about what's on the outside and to work with and maybe sometimes manip manipulate, control the outside. And it's, it doesn't work, at least in, in terms of creating inner peace. So tune your attention in towards yourself. What's happening with you? What's going on? What sensations are you feeling? What, what feelings are you feeling? Are, are, you, are you thinking anything? Just, just be curious about who you are, what's going on for you, attune to yourself and then attend to yourself. So let's say I tune into myself and I'm like, wow, I'm feeling a little bit uncomfortable right now. My, my chest is kind of tight. Uh, don't like that. Yeah, okay. Well, oh, I didn't know that was happening. Good, good thing I checked in with myself. That, what, I wonder why that's happening. And then it's this love, it's, it's almost like having a mentor or guide with you, but you can do that for yourself. And then, so after I uh, attune to myself and I get curious and I find out what's going on, oftentimes for me in the early days, what it, what it would have been was like, oh, I feel angry. I feel stressed. I feel, I feel um, overly activated, too much energy in the system. That was my constant one. And so the, the next question would be, okay, so what do you need? Like, how can I help you? And so it's kind of a, a strange thing to think that you can talk to yourself like this and that you can attend to yourself like this, but you can. And when you do, it's, well, at the beginning, it's uncomfortable because it's like, I don't deserve that much attention. <laughs> I don't deserve that much care. That, this, this seems a little bit fruity or, or like a little bit too, you know, like a uh, hippy dippy. And, but man, it's powerful because look what can happen. Uh, okay. So what do you need? Well, I think I need to do some breathing right now. I'd, I'd like to, I'd like to bring this level of activation down. I'd like to down regulate. I think that the scenario that I'm in right now is definitely calling for that. You know, whether it's 
I'm with my kids or I'm, I'm working with some other kids, I would really benefit right now from becoming a bit more grounded and present. Okay, great. Like it's, so I can get back on track and I can get back to being the person I want to be in the moment. And it's so powerful. It's so much different than living a life of being unaware of who you are and the, and what's going on inside of you and, and why you're doing what you're doing. And then being frustrated why things aren't working out the way that you want them to versus knowing what's going on, attending to it, um, and then adjusting along the way, making little micro adjustments along the way so that you're being the person that you want to be. Those two lives are dramatically different. And one is frustrating and painful and full of struggle. And the other one is fulfilling and joyful. You spoke to so many kernels of wisdom there. It's, yeah. it's, it's even hard to reflect or reframe what we're hearing. A couple of the the overarching keys, I, I like, you know, that we're kind of using that term. So just continuing with that, a couple of the overarching like keys that I've heard um, is, you know, positive self-talk or, you know, um, uh, yeah, positive self-talk. Uh, another one yeah. that I'm hearing from you is um, the idea of being conscious or aware um, of of you know, your surroundings and, and taking a dive inward. Um, I'm curious, you know, we've touched on a couple of different things, but are there like three primary lessons maybe that are, that you can share with us um, as takeaways for our listeners um, that you have gleaned um, coming into this new conscious role of parenting that you, that you'd like to share? There's, 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 I'm trying to boil it down to three right now. One is that like healing yourself, although uncomfortable, potentially uncomfortable and difficult to navigate is worth it. And perhaps investing in some kind of support for that would be a good idea, especially if you're unaware. There's lots of resources online right now, which is great. But one of the things like a, like a good mentor or coach would do for you is that they would model for you almost that good parent, that that co-regulation. The idea would be that being in the environment of that would be contagious. It would be like, oh, this is interesting. This is what it feels like to mm -hmm. feel loved and supported and accepted. And oh, this, this person's calm and composed and confident. And that it's almost like working with someone like that, being around someone like that seeps, it, like the, it seeps into you and it, it, it maybe fills that cup that needed to be filled. And um, so then it allows you to give it to yourself. Oh, okay, right. Uh, because of that modeling, because of those interactions that I've had with that mentor or that group of people that are really good for me, I'm now starting to be able to do that with myself. Because you don't know what you don't know. What you haven't experienced, it's really hard to be like, I'm going to give myself the things that I've never have experienced. It's super hard. So then like that pays dividends because you start to feel good, comfortable in your own skin, accepting of yourself because you've learned it. You've like, Oh, okay. You've, you've learned the lessons of how to do that. You've felt it. It's a live, it's a felt experience. And so then you're able to do it with your kids. So how cool is that? 
like your kids then get to grow up in an environment of feeling accepted, supported, not judged, safe. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm not sure if I answered the question, but I think that that's what came to me as, as a really important takeaway. Um, because books are great. They really are. But um, the why, why I do one-on-one coaching is because it's really transformational. Like it's really potent because there's things happening in the session other than transfer of information. Like here, read this quote. There's different things happening at different levels. And there's transformations that happen that are like deep and body-based and energetic, Mm -hmm. spiritual. And to be truthful, you've posted online that adults are really just big kids. And one of the things we know to be true about neurological development, um, especially in young people, is more is caught than taught. And so it makes sense that if you don't have the exposure or the skills that being modeled, what it means to show compassion, what it means to practice curiosity rather than judgment, can have profound implications for how you show up in the world as a person first and as a parent second. But the question was three takeaways. So I'm going to help based on what you have already (laughs) said that is inspiring and truth to power. Number one, change is the only constant of the universe, right? You said it's hard to imagine myself as a person without awareness, but I've been there. And you've also mentioned that your relationship with your parents can be the same after 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 years. And that's because we attach ourselves to what we think we know rather than continuously exploring new possibilities. Every seven years on a cellular level, you are a different person. And you used a really great quote that I want to highlight. The attachment produces shame, pain, suffering. The openness to vulnerability, to change, to transformation, to growth produces joy, satisfaction, and fulfillment. And, you know, I think you should put that on a bumper sticker. (laughs) You know what? I, I came home a couple nights ago and we had some people over for dinner and I was late to dinner because I was at an improv class and the guests that were over, they said, improv, you do, you're doing improv. Like like they were surprised that I was doing that. And I was like, you know what? It is kind of surprising. Like I'm, you know, it's, it's kind of a goofy thing. And I said, um, I I would have seen it as corny in the past and like, look, look down my nose on it and been like, Oh, those weird improv people. And it would have been a judgment to protect my vulnerability. And mm. yes, so now I'm interested in being open and being vulnerable and in being positive and learning and growing because that is, like you said, it's really fulfilling. Um, but it's, it's, it's like a leap of faith. It's like, will I be okay mm. if I'm this open? Like, mm. yeah. <laughs> and if that's the same uncanny, um, scary feelings you get from when you look at a mirror and you do the inner work, right? Because it's a forced confrontation with your thoughts and experiences and the stories you tell. And so that's why if I am to predict the future and to suggest the ways in which the world needs to heal on a macro level, it is more people being willing and this is what I would kind of clarify or codify as your third takeaway based on what I'm hearing, The world needs to be less reactive to the overstimulation of the outer world and take time daily to investigate 
with kindness and compassion their inner world. Um, another thing you've posted recently is I may not be able to change the world, but I can certainly change myself or embrace change within myself by becoming more compassionate and becoming more conscious. And that's like, you know, the message we want to promote. Mm. That's and how I'm change curious, happens. And I'm curious, um, you know, we've talked a lot about you becoming a parent, that internal journey, kind of what that looks like for your kids. Um, I'd like to shift to talking about how all of this change um, has looked in terms of your relationship with your partner. Mm. Um, and if you could kind of speak to that a little bit. Yeah. Well, we, we both became parents, uh, like, how, oh, how long were we together for? Maybe five years? No. Uh, maybe longer than that, maybe seven years or something. So we, we hadn't like, it wasn't like we were just newly together or even newly married. We were together for a significant amount of time. We we're both mature. Like I was, I think my wife was 30 and I was 33. So we were like not young. And I thought that we were ready. Uh, I thought that we were intelligent and capable and, and like, I thought that we'd kind of kill it. Like, look at, look yeah. at us. We're smart people. Yeah. Um, and then, and then my son came and rocked our world and it was both of our first time doing it. And, um, a lot of uncertainty, like, are we doing the right thing again? Like my emotional outbursts, um, made it really difficult in the first couple of years on the relationship. Um, and then like my own attachment issues, which like if we're to go into that, I would say that I am anxiously attached. That's the, that's the attachment style that um, I developed and carried with me. And so this is what happens sometimes. And I've seen this in other relationships. Mom gets busy with the infant because it's demanding. I know where this is going. <laughs> and... Uh, uh, a husband that has a more anxious attachment style and, and is worried about abandonment and, and, you know, has concerns about like the security of his relationship can get like triggered by what seems to be like a lack of attention toward him. And this, it, it just happens. Like, and I was, I want to, I want to speak it out loud because yeah. mm -hmm. there's a lot of shame there for both men and women in this situation. But like, you know, for a man, my thoughts would be like, hey dude, how can you make this about you right now? Like there's there's like a kid here, you've got to stay strong. You, you shouldn't be thinking like this. You're, you're being so weak. But again, that type of judgment and shame being of myself never helped. So when I understood where I came from and why, then I could like, help myself feel safe, or I could go ask other people to help me do that. And to realize when my behavior was like when I was getting triggered from something that existed in me from a long time ago. But I think those early years can be very difficult for parents and on the relationship. And because I was triggered by that, I would see things in a certain way. Well, she doesn't love me. She's not really showing up in this relationship. Oh, she could show up for the son. Oh, look, oh, she's got lots of time for him, but not for me. Oh, interesting. <laughs> interesting. Oh, 
And a lot of insecurity came up. And so it's kind of a perfect storm of things because look at what's happening all at one time, right? Like a new kid, you know, all the time and the energy and effort going to the child. But then at the same time, two individuals have this like new experience of each other, of the relationship until that starts happening. And man, like I, I would say to people that are going through this, like get help, get support, and also understand that like things get easier, like stick, stick with it. If you can be as gentle as you can, like in the moment, things will change. Your perspective can change where I'm at now compared to then. I'm glad I stuck with it. Like, I'm really glad I stuck with it because <laughs> it would have been, it would have been pulling shoot too early. And I, I have to say, if I'm honest, like there were times where I was thinking, I don't know if I want to be in this relationship. I don't know if this relationship is meeting my needs. I don't, I don't know if we're right for each other. So I just wanted to say that because I do think people are going through it and to, to pretend that it's not happening is not of service to people. And no one told me about it. No one was like, hey, dude, this is going to be tough. And here's the ways that it's going to be tough. No, nobody ever pulled me aside. And honestly, you've spoken so many truths of our experience as a couple. Every book that I purchased and read in the lead up to Amanda delivering Emery was all about how I can help her. You know, mark yeah. the things off on your calendar, you know, start to pack the bag. I'm not saying that that's not worthwhile. That was super helpful. But one of the things that I hope to do in our mission of offering a couple's podcast that can offer tools and strategies is help empower men with things that they can do internally to prepare for what I call grieving, right? Because the nine, 10 months leading up to that, that process was the most intimate and connected time. We, we call ourselves soulmates. We were together several years before we decided to intentionally conceive a child. We knew we had baggage. We knew we had to heal some stuff. But that, that nine, 10 months was magical. Mm. And I can only describe the connection. I get big chills every time I talk about it. The connection between the two of us as profound and life-changing. And then all of a sudden, well, we had the unique situation of 13 days later, we were in shutdown, lockdown. She's doing postpartum depression. But it is grieving the, the life that you had before you became a parent and the relationship that you had before you became a parent, before you can even be aware enough to build the building blocks of your new yeah. relationship and connection as a family unit. Yeah. That's a great point, man. Every time there's a change, especially a significant change, and people don't want to realize this, but there is a loss. There's a loss of something. So it's okay if, if only we could just be comfortable with grief and be like, oh, I'm going to let myself feel this and let it pass through so we could make room for a new reality. But we don't like grief. We don't like it. But like I've heard that grief can be used almost synonymous, synonymously with healing. Maybe there is no healing without grief. And I've come to realize that in my own life. The places where I stop myself from grieving, I've also stopped myself from healing. I'll say one more thing about like the husband perspective because that's what I can speak to. And it's not to downplay a woman or a wife's experience. That's just not my um, place to speak. A lot of men, because of their upbringing, and because of culture and, and expectations and conditioning can lean on their 
female partners for emotional support, the woman and the wife in the relationship can be like the emotional center for the man and sometimes the only emotional support for the man, which isn't entirely healthy because mm. um, that's a lot of pressure. It's a lot of eggs in one basket. Um, and it's, um, it's not taking advantage of other people, community. Um, and what happens when she's not up for it? What happens when she is going through her own emotional stuff and she needs someone to hold space for her and who, someone who, who's resourced and has other people supporting him? Like that's something that gets really complicated too. And I wanted to speak that out loud because I see it as so common. A lot of men don't have the awareness wherewithal, resources, ability, the connections to lean on other people and certainly not other men, which I think is really important. Um, some of the best, happiest, most successful and fulfilled, did I say sexy yet? Sexy relationships <laughs> are the ones where the man in the relationship, now we're getting into polarity here a bit and that kind of thing, but where the man, the husband in the relationship is being supported by other people emotionally. And so then what he brings into the relationship is this like well-resourced, like lots of capacity. And he's there to hold a lot of space for his woman partner. It just, it's interesting that like, when I see this happen, I see a lot of happiness. I see a lot of like, a healthy functionality and sexiness and connectedness. <laughs> so, so like, if you're a guy listening to this, take note. Undoubtedly. And I mean, for example, we aren't having this conversation if I don't look in the mirror and say, I need social support and I need consciousness raising outside of my relationship. Find the dad edge, meet you on a Wednesday call and, you know, being open to that not only opens yourself and your heart and mind to healing, but it creates new connections that can be transformative and change-making. Yeah. And I want to speak to um, one of our central goals is to help end cycles of generational trauma by teaching parents that they can grow through what they go through. And so we want to segue to talk about your coaching practice and the specific measures of support that you offer to help moms and dads do that? Well, I think that being in the position to, to break generational cycles of hurt, pain, anguish, trauma, it's super important. It's really a position of privilege. It's, it's such an opportunity. It, it could be seen as one of two things, maybe more. It could be seen as a burden. Oh crap, I got to deal with this now. I've been, saddled, I've been saddled with this shit. But also it's like, whoa, me? I get to affect change here on a massive level. Wow, what an opportunity, holy cow. So the way you look at it can help from the outset. You don't, you're not required to do anything, but you can if you want to. And that seems to relax people and let them pursue this in a way that's non-pressured. Like you, you get to do this. Is this something that you want to do? What, what could happen if you do this? What, what could change for you and your family? And really helping people look at 
the positives and the possibility instead of, I don't like to use pressure tactics on people. You have to do this. If you don't do this, you're going to, no, no. So I like to help people think of what's possible and what could change, what good can come of them taking this opportunity to uh, help heal themselves and the relationship they have with their partner and their family. What kind of, what, what could result from this? And once you get people thinking like that, it's almost like um, that snowball is, is rolling down the hill and picking up speed and it's, it's, it's all, you're off to the races because envisioning an image of your family and your children and their future where people are healthy and uh, well-adjusted and they like each other and they like the world that they're in and they're contributing to the world in positive ways. It's very inspiring. Um, so that's the first thing I like to do is look at this from the lens of like possibility, positivity. Um, so inside my coaching, that's, that's my energy. It's always my energy. It's not that people can't have hard feelings and be emotional and like feeling like they want to quit and give up. I allow for all that. And I just hold this like light for them that this is possible. I know it's possible, first of all, because I did it. Um, secondly, I believe in people. And I wrote this too recently. I believe in people until they believe in themselves. And it's just like one of the most useful things that you could ever have in your life is someone who, who listens to you, accepts you, loves you, encourages you, and supports you. And then who just is unwavering in their belief in you and turns you back toward your own positivity, your own capability, and helps you change your mindset from, you know, negative and destructive to positive and constructive. And it's, um, I would say it takes different amounts of time for different people. It's a relearning. Maybe, maybe it's an unlearning and then a relearning. Uh, but like, if you think about it from learning a sport kind of perspective, it's a skill to learn about how to be aware of yourself, how to, how to think and behave and operate in the world in a way that feels really good. So it's like, it's a skill and it's not that much different from like, Hey, if, if let's, I'm going to teach you golf, Tony and Tony's, well, I've never played golf before. Okay. Do you want to learn? Yeah, actually I really do. Okay. Well, that's really important. Great. So you want to learn? Yeah, let's do it. Okay. Oh, but it, it's going to take too long. It'll take the time that it takes. Uh, and so at the beginning, you're going to not be so good at golf, right? And you're going to be down on yourself. And then um, if you stick with it and you allow it to take the time that's going to take and you have someone by your side, like encouraging you and picking you up, picking you up when you're down and pointing out to you the ways that you're getting better so that you can see it, you can see your progress, that's really helpful. Um, that's what coaching is, that's what my coaching is. Coaching comes from the world of athletics and performance and acting, so that's where coaching comes from. And it's so useful, like, um, you know, having a good coach in your life is, you know, priceless. Um, so, yeah. It's, it's, it's a really rewarding profession because how cool is it to see someone 
who was just kind of on the edge of being like, I don't know if I can do this. This is so hard. Maybe I shouldn't do it. And then they make the choice. They choose themselves. They choose, you know, growth. And then the, it's very, it's a very humbling, honorable position to be in to help that person move towards what they want and what they want to create. And it works. Before Amanda chimes in here, just on a more practical or literal level, you do one-on-one -on -one coaching, you do relationship coaching, and sort of what, what does the typical structure of your program or your offering look like? The particulars are this. I do one-on-one -on -one coaching mostly. I've done some courses on, on parenting, and I've, I've done a course with men on, um, I think we did emotional mastery in that course. But most of my coaching is one-on-one, -on -one, intimate coaching containers. And my average length is six months that I work with people. It's an ongoing thing. And the curriculum, so to speak, is based off of each individual, right? And what they want to create in their lives. Um, and that's, we figure that out in the first couple calls of what we're going to be working on and how we're going to be working on it. We come to an agreement of what would really serve the client the best. So it's, awesome. it's highly individualized and customized, tailor-made. Tailor yeah. And, and to your point, people invest in coaches across all other areas of human performance. And I think that the world would be a happier, more fulfilling place to live, less violent place to live if more uh, parents and couples invested in growth strategies with, with people who have experienced the things that they're trying to grow through. Yeah. On one side, you could see it as just another, another expense, like, oh, well, we, we need a new refrigerator. So what should we do? Well, we should, we'll, we'll get the new refrigerator. Um, because that's, we need to have a good refrigerator. And it's like, if you actually stepped back and maybe even like 15 years later, someone asks you, they're like, would you, if you had done this, a chance to do this again, would you have got the refrigerator or might you have invested a few thousand dollars in becoming the best parent that you could have for your kids? And like, it's, 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 diff it's difficult in the moment sometimes to understand the impact, understand the investment, what you're doing for people like me who grew up with a certain model of parenting and wanted something different, but didn't know exactly what or how it makes sense that there would be some kind of learning some some forum in which a person could learn and grow and discover who they wanted to be as a parent and if you don't do that you don't do it like you're not doing you're busy with other things you're busy with with work and getting by and i, I just heard so much people wish that in retrospect they had done something this is not to shame or blame anybody but if you have the if you have the inclination to do something, I fully encourage it. Pick up a book, talk to people, make, make it an important thing in your life because your kids are worth it. So I advocate for kids in this way. Your kids want you to do this. <laughs> and it's a value add. Yeah, it, I mean, it, you're, you, not only do you benefit, your children benefit, it sounds like your partner obviously you know, benefits as well and maybe even the extended family. So it seems like there's just so much good that can come from it, you know? And to kind of segue a little bit, um, one of your clients, Megan Smith, uh, she had this to say about your coaching. Uh, what I love about working with Drew is that he was able to hold so much space for my fear, worry, and shame around parenting, but also left me feeling like I was wise, powerful, and able to be the kind of parent I wanted to be. First of all, 
what a wonderful, beautiful thing to say. And I think that just speaks to the power that you have as a coach and the transformation work that you have done. Um, I'm wondering if you can tell us about how you help parents approach their fears, worries, and shame around parenting. Well, that's it. That's the recipe right there, right? Like if you want to be a coach, even a coach to your kids, um, which you can do, uh, to help people deal with fear, to, to not focus too much on the fear, to help them feel better and relaxed, and then refocused on where they want to go, how they're already good, right? It's like what we focus on grows, what we appreciate appreciates. And if the only thing you did in a coaching practice was to help somebody like not focus so much on the negative or, or help them process that in a way that made them feel better and then retooled and looked, okay, so what do you want to do? What do you want to create? Yes, I believe in you. That's it. That's, it's not very hard. Um, so when I have different things that I do to help people deal with like fears and negativity, one would be to just listen. And it, there, there have been times where clients have talked themselves out of it. Like I, I, they've had a few minutes of just being totally heard and understood and validated. Yeah, it makes sense that you're feeling like that. I get it. That I felt like that too before, and I, I understand why you're there. And so there's something completely transformational about acceptance and validation. Mm. It's almost like the itch gets scratched and, and the client can move on. Okay, and oh, I feel better now. Well, thanks so much for listening to me. And that feel, I feel good. Being witnessed yeah. feels good. So there's that. There's normalizing somebody's negative uh, experience. Like, hey, th that, I think that's normal. Um, I think what you're going through is normal. Uh, I know a lot of parents that have gone through that. Oh, really? Yeah. I, I, hey, I went through that. Really? Yeah, I did. And so just understanding that you're not like some freak or you're not bad or wrong and other people did this, that's, that's a big deal. Sometimes I bring humor to it. Sometimes I, I'll share an own, my own goofy story about what I did and how I really messed things up. Or, um, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll use some lightheartedness in the interaction. And depending on the client and the moment, it can really work to just cut the tension. I don't like to like rely on that or push that too hard because I, I want to make sure that I'm listening and hearing and not distracting, but it has its place. The last thing which I've already touched on was revisiting why they're doing this work, where they want to go, what the focus is and why, why this is important. Helping people remember who they want to be, helping them remember their vision. That's really helpful too. And that can bring a bunch of good feelings and positivity back to the conversation as well, because they get to remember that their heart is so committed to being a better person, a better parent for their kids. And there's such power in that, that like, even people that wouldn't necessarily do it for themselves, they'll do it for their kids. Yeah. Amen. So I'm hearing creating some levity, maybe a little bit of humor, helping people remember their why, yep. creating space. And helping people feel seen, heard, and understood yeah. through Absolutely. active listening. And that normalizing. And I yeah. totally get that in conversations we've had with our clients. It's not that 
misery likes company, but it's more the idea that there's some comfort in knowing that you're not alone, you know, that other people can understand where, where you've come, where you're coming from or what you've been through. One of my favorite quotes is by our patron saint, Brene Brown, pain <laughs> only becomes shame when we are alone in it, when we feel alone in it. And that power of solidarity and connection, authentic, real human connection has the ability to help someone. Like you said, you're all you're doing a lot of times is holding a mirror and allowing them to work through it on their own because they have a safe space to express and release the thing that they're attached to or their emotions. Yeah. I, I have this thing that I do too, which is like, I can prove to anybody that they're good. Right. Like I have this, I remember one time I, I, a couple of years ago, I put a challenge on my post Facebook page, which was like, I could turn any negative story that you have about yourself into a positive and loving one. And I have an ability to do that of like helping people understand like everybody's behavior makes sense. It does. Everybody's behavior makes sense. It came from somewhere. It makes sense at some level. And so what I do is I find like the benign interpretation of that or like the, the benefit of the doubt interpretation of that. And even when someone does something that they wish they hadn't done or they regress in some way, I'm like, let's, let's take a look at this though. Let's take a look at, at uh, let's understand how you got there. And so understanding is like, it's like the, the antidote to judgment and shame. Oh, now we understand it. Oh, oh, that's why I did that. Oh, it does make sense right now. Okay. I guess, yeah, probably a lot of people would have done that in, in my shoes. Yeah, they probably would have. Yeah. So that's, yeah. A, that's another amazing thing that I, that I help people with is that like understanding of themselves. And I, it, it just cuts through the judgment um, so well. And helps to helps with that um, compassion. And I've personally benefited from your approach. I've watched you in a single hour help someone reshape their understanding of big picture events and happenings in their life. And just any of our clients or any of our audience that is listening, I truly encourage you to reach out to Drew if you feel you could benefit from that openness, that levity, that safe space to be who you are and to have an authentic person who's been through it offer you sage words of wisdom that can help you about your journey. Um, and finally, we want to segue to discuss your book, which is kind of the formation or the foundation for the Wednesday call in the Data Edge Alliance that, that we get to take part in together that you lead. Um, and your book is called Pit. Parenting for a Peaceful Home, How to Overcome Anger and Lead by a Loving Example. I guess two questions to start. Who is your target audience for the book and what are some of the main takeaways you like to focus on? The target audience is parents who are experiencing the emotion of anger and then acting on it. And, and, then, and then having the awareness that... I don't want to be doing this. This is not good for my family. So it's not about doing away with feelings of anger and like, you know, I don't know, magicking them away. Cause I get, I still get angry. 
but it's, it's what we do with it. And so kids become the target so often of parents' anger. It, they become like the lightning rod for the parents' anger and dysregulation. And it's not fair. It's happening all across the country, all across the world. It's just so easy because they're there, they're small, they're powerless, you know, they're, they are dysregulated themselves. And so it just becomes way too easy to inflict all of these like, you know, intense emotions and then behaviors onto a kid. And so if you're a parent who realizes like, ah, this is not good. I, I'm, I'm, this is not a, this is not a healthy space for my kids to develop. I want to do better. So this book helps you do better in learning what to do with your big emotions so that you don't put them on your kids, the kids that don't deserve that. And then and, what was the next honest, um, what are the main takeaways? You've kind of spoken to it. Um, okay. I kind of want to ask yeah. a follow-up though, because two of the things that you say are, are really, really powerful and, and then kind of what I hope to be main touching points of this episode. Number one, big feelings are inevitable, even as a conscious or emotionally regulated adult, but especially if you don't have those skills, what we resist persists. So if you know you have anger and you try to suppress it, guess what? It's going to come out in the most reactive, reactionary ways, tending toward the people that you love most in the world. And then secondly, it's got to go somewhere, right? So it's got to be expressed or released. And I think that that's why we love your message and we love having you on because you've worked through that. And you realize that you're perfectly imperfect, but you do have a foot to stand on when it comes to what to do with those emotions. A another main part of the book or part of your messaging is the idea of reparenting. Honestly, this is the biggest thing that I've had to do in my short time as a parent is offer myself the types of loving kindness or connection or intimacy that I wished I had. And some of the phraseology that's in the DEA is you either become the parent that you had or the parent that you wished you had. Mm. Can you talk to us about what reparenting means to you and how someone who's still in survival mode, who still feels unsafe, maybe they have that awareness, but what do they do from, with, from there? Invariably, as we grow up, we are going to have some needs met and some not. It's just the way it is. Like, I don't know if we can escape that. We can try as parents to do a good job with our kids, but I think that we're not going to be perfect. And so that when they grow up, our kids, even they're, they're going to have some things that they want to address, some needs, some things that they didn't get that they wanted to get. And, and then some things that were too much, they didn't want all of that. And so looking back and being curious about what would have been the thing that you wanted, what would have felt really good you when you were young is the idea of reparenting and reparenting that inner child. Again, it's not disrespectful because no parent can be perfect. I think we all try to do our best. I'm not a better person than my parents were. I'm just not. I might have some more awareness and some more skills. Honestly, so, becoming a parent made me the mo way more compassionate for my parents and their subject position and their struggles than I ever was before. Yeah. So and I, I, I think that if that anger is still there, 
towards your parents, an intense kind of anger that you have a hard time letting go of, then there's some, there's some work to do. And it's not that it's not justified. You know, your feelings make sense, but it's a key. It's a clue to some more growth and healing. You can give yourself, whether it's like, you know, through a community or through a counselor or a coach, you can try to provide yourself with some of the things you didn't get. Then you can also learn yourself to do those things. And oftentimes what it is, what I've seen that it is, is just being there and allowing you to feel what you're feeling and to want what you want and to be who you want to be. That's reparenting because unfortunately and inadvertently what happens is parents can communicate the opposite to their kids. You can't feel that. It doesn't make any sense. You're not allowed to do that. You're not allowed to be that person. And that's where we get like blocked in our authenticity. We start feeling bad about who we are. So really reparenting is a way of like allowing yourself to be who you are, allowing yourself to feel what you feel and, and not making yourself wrong and, and loving yourself for, for who you are. And it's wild. It's totally awesome and liberating. And how beautiful that some part of your journey involves looking at your son, realizing his inner goodness and allowing that inner goodness to be a light for you to see your worth, your potential. And now that energy, that realization becomes the catalyst for change making for so many of the people that you get to impact. Um, I call my oldest, our oldest, my greatest teacher. Yeah. Um, and I've had a lot of great teachers, but I can only hope to use the relationship that we have as a family, good, bad, and ugly, to help parents and families create that type of intimate connection, uh, to create that family that holds hands and smiles through the good, bad, and, and the challenging times and allows that that the way i like to say this is i can only hope to live in a way that honors the love i have for my girls and to your point um that didn't come from you know out of nowhere it came from the wisdom that i got from you the wisdom that i get from the men in the dea and then honestly a, a willingness and an openness to seek out new patterns and forms of knowledge and so thank you so much for sharing um, who you are, sharing your gifts with the world, sharing your experiences openly and vulnerably in a way that can be a catalyst for change. You're welcome. Thank you for having me on. And I appreciate, uh, I appreciate the opportunity to speak and to share. Um, you guys make it easy to have open and vulnerable conversations just by who you are. Um, and I hope that you continue to do this and talk to people and spread awareness because you know it's true that if I had trouble and you guys had trouble and you were challenged that there's a lot of other people that are in the same boat and could use words of wisdom, normalizing the experience, um, helpful skills and perspectives. And like I started out by you know, I think it was like 10 or 11 years ago, wanting to write a blog. That's how I started this whole thing. Oh, I'm thinking about writing a blog. And I didn't, I, I was nervous about doing it. 
And I stalled on it for maybe like, I don't know, like six or eight months. And a friend of mine, a really good friend of mine, who's helped me a lot, said, what are you, what are you waiting for? I don't know. Maybe people won't like it. People will think my family might read it. Ah, I don't know what's going to, maybe I'll say the wrong thing. He's like, why do you want to do it? I said, I want to help people. Mm. He said, well, how many people do you have to help in order for this to be useful, to, for, for you to do it? I was like, one person. And he kind of throws his hands up in the air and he's like, dude, write the effing <laughs> blog. You're going to help one person. And it was, it was, that. that moment was a catalyst for me going like, oh yeah, I probably will. Like, and that would be worth it if I help yeah. one person. And so that moment has grown into doing what I'm doing now. And on that note, for our listeners, if they would like to get in contact with you, um, what's your handle? Where can they find you? So you can go to my website, drewtupper.com, and you can find me on Facebook and Instagram at Drew Tupper. And I'll just say, people, he drops daily or multiple times weekly wisdom bombs, just these very um, almost blog-like posts that are reflective that have application tools that almost always make me stop and go, Ooh, dang, that's brilliant. <laughs> and so I hope you continue sharing your gifts as well, Drew. Thank you, Drew. It's been an absolute pleasure to have this conversation. And to your point, change is an organic process that begins with conversations like these. So may we go out into the world and continue to put good into it. Yeah. You guys are change makers. You're doing good things in the world. I'm excited <laughs> for you, you, sir. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you. <laughs> All right. Take care. Bye-bye. Okay, bye-bye. Wow. What an episode. Thank you for listening. We hope you took some meaningful tools and skills that empower you to become your highest self in every way. We also hope you'll help us spread our messages of solidarity, social support, and consciousness raising by subscribing to our YouTube channel at Mindful and Fit and offering us an honest five-star review wherever you listen to podcasts. Doing so helps more people hear these important messages of love, healing, and becoming. And as always, much love from the Johnson family. We hope you make today amazing. Just, Just like, like you. you.